Okay, I'm going to, even though it's 629, uh, those who are most serious about the Lord are here, and so I'm just going to start it off. Uh, we are um, continuing our series on the kingdom of God. I know uh, that you may be... Uh, kind of disconnected because we had that crazy uh, Wednesday night last night, but uh, we are now back in the thick of it, and we're going to be talking tonight about the concept of what, what I'm describing as kingdom qualifiers and kingdom disqualifiers. Now, I want to caution you a little bit um, about reading too much into uh, even the statement disqualifier or the statement qualifier. Uh, what we are going to be doing is looking at what the Bible literally says about the kingdom of God in relation to how do you get into it and how do you, phrases that, with that he would use, that you're not worthy, that you will not inherit. If, the, if we were to use the Bible, right, this is, you will not inherit. These people will not inherit. And I want to I wanna spend some time looking at that, okay? Now, what usually happens, and I'll give you a, a good example of this, was I had a young man recently email me and say, listen, um, just recently uh, in one of our worship services, somebody got baptized and there was a statement, I don't remember who made it, but it was a statement that kind of went like this, um, and then now in this baptism and they will receive the Holy Spirit and I would just like to know what you believe, does the Holy Spirit come at baptism? And so there's the question. And it's in an email, so you know it's personal, you know? Um, and their, their name was attached, and I just said, listen, I think we probably need to meet for lunch in order for us to explain this. And we did. We actually had a great conversation. Young man, college student, really interested in what the Bible says about what, how, the, how the Holy Spirit comes into a believer, okay? Now, here's what I find fascinating about the conversation, and you'll see how it relates to what we're talking about today is before we did anything, we're sitting down, we'd ordered our food, we're sitting down, and I just said, hey, I wanna ask you this question. What do you believe about the Holy Spirit and when it comes into a believer? And he began to theologize. He began to say, well, here's how a person is saved and here's how a person's not saved. And then this is what, and he began to theologize, and I said, well, no, 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 no. I just want Bible verses, don't talk to me, give me Bible verses. To which case, and this would be happening to most of us, he gets reduced to, well, I don't know where they are. I said, okay, like, first of all, it's good to realize there's a lot of things that we believe that we would have a real hard time building a case for. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I, all I was trying to do was to help him realize that you would be surprised at how many things you strongly believe that maybe don't have a clearly step one, step two, step three, step four process in the Bible, okay? And so as we're going to be talking about this thing tonight about the kingdom and qualifiers and disqualifiers, you could probably ask this question. So does this have anything to do with the issue about whether or not a person can or cannot lose their salvation? And I would say, I'm really not trying to answer that question, but clearly what we're going to be studying tonight will have implications about what we believe in that, on that issue, okay? But that's not what I'm trying to argue about one way or the other. What I have done for this study is what is known as a lexical, lexical analysis, and the lexical analysis just says this. I just looked at the word basileia in the Greek, meaning kingdom, 
And I looked at it in the New Testament and I began to pick those texts, as many as I could find, that had something to do with salvation, with how people get inside the kingdom, and then how people don't get inside the kingdom. And I'm just, we're going to what, for the most part, we're gonna do our best. It's never, it's never perfect. We're gonna do our best to just let the Bible speak for itself. Does that make sense? Which, let me, let me just tell you, that doesn't prove, I, I, said to, I said to this young man, I said, hey, and by the way, as you're describing about the Holy Spirit and how it comes in, about, I think I agree with everything you said. I really do. <laughs> I, I, I kind of like how you described it. I like how you talked about that we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith. And I said, here are some things I don't think you see, and I shared those. And, um, and by the time we were done, we realized, we don't know if we had an answer, answer, but we both had, I hope we both had, like a healthy appreciation for how the Bible comes to us. And instead of me coming and proving my point, let me look at this verse, I got this verse. Let's let the Bible speak for itself and let's let it instruct us. Couple of words that I want us to go through um, because I just want you to know, I may not be as good looking, but I am almost as smart as Drew and Ryan, okay? Just so we're clear. So I'm, gonna, I'm trying to impress you with some really kind of cool words so you're not like, wow, when Drew talks, he's intelligent and insightful. And when Ryan talks, he uses, I can use big words too, Ryan Vincent, okay? And so here's some things that I want, you to, I want you to actually see because as we are talking about the kingdom of God, I want us to remember that kind of in its simplest, in its purest sense, the kingdom of God is God's reign or God's rule that exists Everywhere, not just on the earth. And by the way, these really are clouds, and I want them to do two things. things. Number one, to kind of even symbolize that when the Bible talks about the heavens and the earth, it really is talking about the earth and then everything above the earth. That even the heavens is not just a place where God dwells, but sometimes it can be actually the word for sky, It can be a number of different things, okay? Um, And I would even say in the heavens, or as Paul would say, in the heavenlies, this actually also represents not just space, but actually the spiritual realm. Does God reign in the spiritual realm over demons and angels? Does God reign over them? Does God rule over them? And the answer is what? Okay, so, and just, I want you to kind of, I don't mind, you know, you guys are the smartest here at Sunnybrook. That's why I love coming Wednesday night, because I know I got the best of the best, okay? And here is, here's what I want you to just think through. So then God rules over Satan, like rules over him. Is that correct? Yes. Is that complicated to think about just a little bit? Not that he can, I mean, no, that's easy. It's not hard for me at all to believe that God rules over him. But when I look at the world or when I look at what he does, I I think sometimes I go, I don't know if I see it. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know if I see it. So I want you to think about this. So this kingdom, which is in essence God's rule or God's reign, where he is in fact king, okay, is a universal fact. This is what the Bible, the Bible does, is the Bible says, God has revealed to us his reign in the universe because you may not have been able to pick it up. You may not have known specifically 
who it was. You could actually be, get confused and think that there was like a thunder god and that there might be a lightning god. You might be confused and think it's actually like a fertility god like, like Baal or, or Marduk or Ra. You might think like that. And, and, and listen, I, I kind of know why you do that because you look at the world and you look at the universe and you go, wow, look at all these powerful forces and you'll be tempted to begin to worship created things but not the creator. By the way, I'm in Romans 1 right now. May he be forever praised. And the Paul says, so that that doesn't confuse you, God comes in and God says, let me reveal myself. I'm the one that made the heavens and the earth. Let me reveal myself. And he sends his son. The greatest revelation of God is in Jesus Christ, his only son, okay? This is God's, why does God send Jesus? To exert his rule over things. So who made this? God did. Who rebelled? Well, Satan, which is just a word meaning adversary, okay? It's almost more like just a description that we then get a proper name from. But Satan, Satan, the adversary, he is the one that God made. He rebelled against humanity somewhere in this area, rebelled against God. And now all of a sudden we have kingdoms in conflict. And so I want you to think through this. So does God rule over Satan? And the answer is yes. And then so therefore does God rule over the world? And the answer is yes. So he rules over it and yet he is still in the process of, um, of, of demonstrating his rule, right? And so here are some three things that I wanna give you. The word, by the way, eschatology, uh, this is my word of the evening to help you um, know that yes, I have studied. Uh, it's <laughs> eska, eska is just the Greek word for last, eschatos, okay, last. And so it's last, and it literally is the study of the, it's the study of the last things, okay, the last things. And so I've added kind of a word here tonight. I've added, you, usually when you're, when you're studying theology, you'll hear these words, underrealized or overrealized eschatology. I added a word in there, not just for the, but to help you understand the study of the last things, which are um, heaven, hell, death, and the afterlife, really kind of fit under this basileia or this kingdom idea, right? Because God is moving somewhere. The, even Jesus Christ coming, he created, we rebelled against. God has redeemed his creation to exert his rule over. God is restoring, and this is interesting, he's not just restoring us like we're broken vessels. He's restoring us like we're bad subjects. You understand that? Like it's not just that I'm, I've made some mistakes. The problem is I rebel against the rightful king. And we forget that. We think my problem is, is that I'm not nice enough. I'm not kind enough. Um, I, I steal things because I'm greedy. No, that's really not the problem. The problem, all of that stems from the fact that God is in fact the creator to be forever praised. And you and I steal from him and rob from him and hurt his other subjects. <laughs> Right, like we're fighting with one another and that really is a sign against him. And for those of you that don't, you know, are still kind of going, well, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to work with you here. When someone hurts your family, how many of you feel like they're hurting you? And what happens when like your kids are hurting your other kids? How many of you take that personally? 
I do. Why? So this really is kind of like a shared idea. And when my sons, in hurting the other, you know, in gymdom, right, as they fight with one another, I, I, I have, I've done this actually a few times. I'll want to look at them and go, like, did you not know I was coming home? Like, did you not know how I wanted you to treat one another? I don't just go, well, this is kind of a disconnected issue. None of you kids really matter to me. No, I take it personally. I feel like, like you, I don't know, I feel like you're disrespecting me, son, the way you treated your brothers. Who am I talking about? Pick one. You know what I mean? This is how we react, and we're like this. We're like this. And so God's saying, but I want, I want my rule, not just because I can, but because I am. Isn't that good? Just made that up actually, right on the top of my head. It's not because I can, but it's because I am the great I am. And I, I want you to know, this is where it very, is, is very much like a natural part of who he is. He is the rightful king. And therefore your sin and my sin is a rebellion that deserves judgment, but God in his gracious mercy extends kindness to us and then re-invites rebellious subjects into his kingdom, Okay. And so when we talk about this kingdom that God is making, we're almost pushed in an end times direction, okay? Because every one of us would admit this. I don't think I see God's rule working in the world. Like, I, sometimes I do. I shouldn't say that. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I'll realize, wow, there really are some nice people. I had a neighbor the other day, and they baked me cookies, and I thought, wow, look at the kingdom of God at work, Right? So we see them, we see them. I mean, this is what I find very interesting about catastrophes that happen, okay? When catastrophes happen, we realize the world is a terrible place. And then we stop and we look around and we see an outpouring of kindness. And we go, man, we live in a good place, right? I mean, think of the events that have happened to us recently. Is this a really broken place? Or is this like a being redeemed and restored place? And the answer is what? Yes. Yes. And this is the story of the Bible. Rebellion and brokenness and murder and stealing and killing and immorality. And, and, and God comes and he breathes life and we have healing and restoration and fidelity and kindness and tur turning the other cheek, right? And this is what it is to live in the world. And God is going somewhere, so we're going to be pushed into the eschaton, the last times, okay? And that's where we're going. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to just look at these three things. I called both Ryan and Drew. They're in, in Dallas right now. And I called them both, and I said, listen, um, I want to make sure that I'm not, I haven't stepped on your toes in the last few weeks, and I want to make sure that I'm not going to step on your toes in the next few weeks, but tell me, can I speak about these three things? And they said, yes. So three things I want you to realize, and very practical. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe, here's what I want you to do. As I'm describing this, don't just pick the one that you know is right, because it's going to be clearly obvious. Pick the one that you kind of almost naturally lean towards. Because not only, I, I think, can we figure out the right answer, but we would also go, ah, but I'm kind of guilty of leaning in this direction. First direction, an under-realized kingdom eschatology. Under-realized, meaning that we don't fully appreciate or we don't fully understand what is happening now. It's under-realized or under-appreciated, okay? Basically, this means that the kingdom of God and God's reign is something that happens way later. 
It's not now. I mean, I'm not saying that nothing good happens now, but um, I, I, we would talk like this. I got saved so that I could go to heaven. And in heaven, it's gonna be different. In heaven, it's gonna be totally different. Now, eh, not so much. Now, you know, let's see what we can do. But the real truth is, is that this world is broken. It's only broken. I don't know if we can make a difference. Anybody? So why, why don't we, and by the way, there are people that kind of think like this. So instead of us actually going out and making a difference, why don't we just try to save people and just kind of hold on till heaven, right? The church has had this mentality. Let's just kind of love one another, care for one another, share the gospel in a, hey, you don't want to go to hell kind of a way. This is a lot of that hellfire and brimstone preaching is not, hey, come be a part of us and experience the kingdom now. It's, hey, don't go to hell. Make a decision for Jesus Christ. Come do religious type things. We'll all hold on to the bottom of our pew as tightly as we can. And someday Jesus Christ is gonna come. So, I mean, your marriage probably isn't gonna get better or your kids probably aren't gonna be, and no one's gonna like you. But you know what? Heaven will reward you. And that's an under-realized kingdom eschatology. The kingdom of God is something we will enjoy in the future after Jesus returns. We're currently living in a world mostly outside of God's rule or reign. The kingdom is synonymous with heaven. Answer, the mentality for this is just wait, just wait. I know it's messed up, just wait, just wait. I, I know it's not working, just wait, just wait. I know there's evil, just wait. Just, I know you're hurting, just wait. That's an under-realized kingdom eschatology. The next response to this, which by the way, I would argue, we have come out of an under-realized era, a long era, and right now we're living in this next one. This is kind of a real popular way to live. And now it would be the opposite of that, which is an over-realized kingdom eschatology, which basically says, hey, this is heaven. Now, now, I, I know, I'm, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying that you don't have pain, but, but you know what, we can make a difference. You know what we can put an end to? We can put an end to poverty. You know why? Because God's called us to make the kingdom now. And the kingdom begins, and they, love all, they have all these Bible verses, right? And the kingdom of God is with you. And the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. And the kingdom of God, they, have all, they do. They have, by the way, there's verses to support all of these positions, okay? And what they want to describe for us is a kingdom, the kingdom of God, is something that we currently enjoy as his people. And the church's then primary task is spreading God's hope for peace and prosperity. The kingdom is best understood as the good life being lived out on earth today. Now, it's not that there's no enjoyable things now under the first model. And it's not that there's no enjoyable things later on, but they emphasize, hold on, just wait, or they emphasize, don't wait. This is it. This is it. Um, without taking an unnecessary shot, uh, I began to see this in Rob. I knew, I knew that Rob Bell was close to getting rid of the concept of hell in his books before this, in his book called Sex God, um, which is actually kind of a very interesting read. I could tell where he was going when in the end heaven was described as what you and I can create right now. What Jesus Christ has made for us to begin to enjoy right now and, and church and biblical community and us caring for the poor is heaven breaking into the world right now. And, and I liked it. I, I, I kind of believe that. 
It just, it seemed like there was really nothing on the other side. It seemed like it was, like, not that it was, not that we shouldn't do that. I mean, anybody disagree with them? That the biblical community that we have and where things are going, but in the end, it was like, hey, we got this. Hey, we can do this. We can usher in by us being kind and nice and sweet. Um, it, by the way, this over-realized kingdom eschatology is easier to believe in the stomach in countries where there's more peace and prosperity. Think about it. How many people do you think right now in Syria are going, oh no, I see it, right? How many people in those countries where everything is falling apart? There are certain, I, I, this is one of the things I always love to ask. Could this book be written at a different time in human history and it be received the same? And could this book be written in a different place today and it be received the same? That's kind of a big question I like to ask. Or is this, and by the way, it doesn't make it a bad book, it just makes it kind of limited in its depth and purpose. So there is a over-realized, hey guys, what we have is it. What we, we, need to, we need to maximize this. And then what happens is that when, and, and this is kind of, I think, one of the reasons why, if you don't mind me making a bit of commentary here, I think this is one of the reasons why so many of us are so afraid of dying, are so afraid of something happening to our children, are so afraid of growing older, are so afraid. It's because we have, there's a great book by A.J. Conyers called The Eclipse of Heaven, where he kind of talks about how no one really planning but we have, as a church culture, for the last three or 400 years, okay, moved in this direction where almost everything that I'm going to experience is now, and therefore, like, I don't want, I don't, like, what else could there be? I've had people say, you know, I mean, I just, I got a wife that I love, I've got great kids, I've got some grandkids, like, what else is there? Honestly, what else is there in life? Is there anything, and they're not just talking life, they're talking about life. Is there anything outside of a great wife and some great kids and some good health? Is there anything possibly out there be better than that? And many of us look and go, no, I really can't think of anything. An SUV, that'd be cool, right? A really cool vacation home. You know, I'd love to shoot under 80 before I die. Right, like these become, right? This is what happens to us when we begin to put all of our marbles unknowingly into today. And that's why I love to, I love to, uh, Keller, Tim Keller talks about how you can begin to see where a, where a culture is putting like its emphasis by when you begin to take away these things, what happens to them? When do they fall apart? And I see people, and I'm one of those people fall apart when you take away from me certain things like health or health from the ones that I love. And I begin to become undone, right? And I just go, wow, and why is it? It's because I remember when I thought Jesus was gonna come back, so not even just me dying. Like literally the end coming and I'm going, but I wanna get married. I don't think I could live for eternity without getting married. Like what's better than marriage? Um, life with Jesus? No. Think about it. What could be better than time with your grandkids? Do, do you, I want you to hear this. Do you understand 
life with Jesus is better. And, and by the way, if, if I'm, I'm not asking like, do you really believe that? Okay, I'm not asking that. I'm going like, do you understand that as a follower of Jesus Christ, we should be growing in that adoration and in that longing? You know, this is one of the areas where my wife, I just look up to her deeply because now you might look at me and go, well, but Jim, you know? But my wife looks at me and goes, yeah, I'm more excited about being with Jesus than you, right? She can look at her kids who she dearly loves and goes, but honestly, my kids disappoint me. And I can really see why being with Jesus is more. And that is this biblical idea the last one, what I would going to call a realized kingdom eschatology, which is that it is both present and future. So we have something now. The kingdom of God is something that we currently enjoy in part, but will ultimately experience in the future after Jesus returns. We currently are experiencing many of God's blessings, but there are many aspects of the kingdom still reserved for us in heaven. Okay? Guess which one's the biblical one? The third one. But I mean, which one are you guilty of? <laughs> like which one, if you can't take the third one, like where are you? I mean, do you kind of look at life and go, oh, I just, I can't wait to be gone. I can't wait to be out of here. Here's where that first one can kind of creep in, right? I mean, I meet a lot of people that go, like what's the point in learning the Bible? I'll just wait till I get to heaven and God can just dump it in my head and I'll just, right? I mean, I know a lot of Christians who act like this. Like, what's the purpose of knowing these deep truths about Jesus when we go to heaven? And here, let me tell you what I now strongly believe is that, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to get ahead of anybody. Like, when I get to heaven, I think this is kind of a great heaven speech. When we get to heaven, we're not going to all of a sudden all become the same and all have the same understanding. I really believe that there will be some of you that will be far beyond where I'm at, experientially and even, even in terms of your understanding of who God is. And it may take me two, three hundred years in human years to catch up. And that's why I don't consider any Bible reading that I, any understanding that I have about God isn't wasted time on this side of eternity. Did you know that? Because I want to know him. And you know what I'm gonna be doing do you know what people are going to be doing in the eschaton? Like after, we're going, to be, we're going to be literally like enjoying the reason why we were all made and we're going to be enjoying the creator not in rebellion but in unison. That's what we were made for. And that's why there is something that is happening now. That's why these relationships matter. That's why I wanna to get to know my brother and my sister. This isn't a waste of time, Right? That's why Jesus doesn't go, oh, you know what, save people from hell and everything else is a waste of time. No. Actually, what Jesus says is, is that um, we're gonna kind of hang out together and then the world's gonna kind of know who God is and then we'll all go together. So these relationships aren't wastes of time. And we're not just trying to get people to not go to hell. We're here to enjoy God forever. So this is the picture of the eschaton of the end times. And so what God is doing is that God has broken into history in Jesus Christ. God has declared victory over sin. 
And now God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, his kingdom is advancing and growing. Whether you see it or not, whether you understand it or not, because God's not out to be more popular than the devil or to be more successful than the devil because God is already clearly in control. He's just cleaning up. And that's what we're a part of. That's what we are a part of, this, this process. And therefore, for those of us who have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we are now, in, in a very real sense, already in the kingdom, already experiencing, in part, what we will experience fully later. So, let's spend our last few moments, half an hour or so, kind of walking through some biblical texts and um, either have your Bibles. I tried to put as much there to kind of uh, set you up for the context. Um, and again, I, I didn't exclude a bunch. I just, any kind of, the word, Greek word basileo or kingdom, anytime I saw that word and it seemed to have some kind of a, you're in or you're out, I just included it. And we're going to kind of walk through here and go, huh, that's really interesting. I should, I should pay attention to that. The first one I found, actually, and we've kind of looked even through these uh, during this series, what would be a kingdom qualifier? By the way, this list is not exhaustive, okay? And it's lexical, so it's through the word kingdom. Um, 520, we're going to see a picture of how do we get into the kingdom. And what I, what I, what I find fascinating, by the way, is if you were to ask me theologically to explain how a person is saved. I, have, I love Ephesians 2. That we are objects of God's wrath apart from God's grace to us in Jesus. But because of God's great love for us, he has made us alive in Jesus Christ and it is by faith that you are saved, not by work so that no one can boast. Right? And so I believe in what Christ has done and that is how I find salvation. That's the biblical big picture idea. But... What I have to fit alongside of that? I mean, how many of you believe Jesus believes we're saved by grace through faith? Okay, so then if Jesus believed, which I do, does Jesus also believe what he said here in Matthew 5? Yeah, so what you and I get to do is not ignore Jesus in Matthew 5 and just live like Jesus in Ephesians 2, is we've gotta say, hey, these things fit together. Don't pit Jesus against Jesus. You'll lose every time. We gotta look at what Jesus is saying here and say, let's take a look at how these things fit together. So in Matthew chapter five, Jesus is speaking and here is how he describes it in verse 20. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, by the way, I don't think Jesus says, and so you don't need me, and you don't need that I'm about to die for you. I need you to be as good as you can on your own apart. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he is saying that part of this kingdom qualifying concept is us demonstrating, and I think it's a result of what Christ is doing in us. It's a result of the Holy Spirit working in us. But there is, in kingdom living, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, do you know what that means? It means that instead of us dotting I's and crossing T's, and instead of us meticulously trying to manage our sin, do you know what we're doing? We are surrendering, according to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we are surrendering our life to the teachings of Jesus Christ and be obedient, being obedient to him. That's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's what it means to be a kingdom 
believer, somebody who is submitting to Jesus Christ and therefore having a righteousness that exceeds that of a law-oriented person. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, love this one. In the same sermon, he actually describes this is somebody who gets inside the kingdom. 6, verse 33, uh, there we are. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things are going to be added to you. And all of these things are the blessings that Jesus gives about the reason why you don't have to worry and you don't have to care. There is a kingdom blessing that comes to us. But the kingdom qualifier is do you desire it? Do you seek after kingdom-minded things? Let me just give you kind of a real quick challenge on this one. I love this question. If God answered all of your prayers, he just said, hey, yes to all of your prayers how much further would his kingdom be? Would it be further? And, and what I, when I heard that the first time, I had to kind of go through all the things that I prayed for. And I went, no, that's about me. No, that's about me. No, that's about me. No, that's, wow. Like, I don't know if I'm, I'm Jesus' prayer that he gives to his disciples as a model is what? Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is. And this is how you should pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is. And by the way, I know we laugh about this, okay? And I like laughing, okay? But this is why I say, please don't just pray for my safety when I travel. Like, I, I don't, just my safety in and of itself does not advance the kingdom. Now, if you want to pray, keep Jim safe so that when he gets there, he can tell the truth about Jesus. I love it. I'm all for it. And please bring Jim back so that when he gets here, he can continue to love his wife and, and, and make a difference. But your will be done, not our, right? That's how we should pray. That it, it doesn't mean that we don't, it doesn't mean that God, I'm not allowed to want anything or need anything, but what I love is trying to figure out how I fit, how my family fits, how my life fits in God's kingdom movement, okay? Because by the way, you know that's gonna last forever. Not Jimdom, Jimdom's going down. Kingdom lasts forever. Next verse, Matthew chapter eight, verse 11. I like this one. I mean, again, some of these are gonna be kind of, we'll be able to deal with these somewhat quicker. I love how he describes this. Remember, Jesus is talking to a group of people. We know they're Jews, okay? But Jesus is talking to a group of people who think that by their birthright, they're in. Okay, now for you, it might be, no, I'm a good person. It's silly to think that just because of your parents, I'm in because I'm a good person. Now you're equally as foolish. We're not in because we're good people. We're not in because our moms are good people. We're not in because of that. We're in because of Jesus Christ. And so here Jesus makes it kind of an interesting, so here the shock value of this, I'll go back in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So he hears someone say faith and they're not from the inside club, okay? And then Jesus says in verse 11, I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom, and I think that's kind of like a small kingdom, sons of this little kingdom, this Jewish kingdom, sons of this kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And he says to this Roman centurion, go, it will be done for you. I love the fact that what Jesus is describing here in terms of what is a qualifier, it is somebody who believes in him, even though they're kind of on the outside looking in. That's a big picture, especially in Matthew's gospel. So there are gonna be people coming from everywhere. This is kind of that, a number of weeks ago I taught on this, that it's interesting, we, we need to really guard our hearts against being presumptuous about how the kingdom operates. And we'll see why here in a moment. Next, verse, or chapter 16, verse 19. Um, for those of you that come from a Catholic tradition, uh, this is actually a great verse, and I think a lot of us within the Protestant tradition could learn a number of things, not everything, but we could learn a number of things from our Catholic brothers and sisters. In verse 9, we love to kind of blow this off like it has nothing to do with Peter, and I don't think Jesus is establishing the church upon Pope and a papal system. I don't believe that, theologically. But I do believe he is giving to Peter something very unique and special. He says this, I'll go back to verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. By the way, I don't know if I told you, we're going to Israel in, um, uh, in, in May of next year, and we're gonna be at the place where there's all these rocks right there at Caesarea, and this is where he says, and on this rock, and you're right, and it's this huge incredible. Okay. He says, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell, better translation probably would be death, will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And keys has to do with like binding and loosing and holding and, and restrict. So Peter's been given some authority here. This lines up with the end of John's gospel where he says to the disciples, whatever you forgive will be forgiven them and whatever you do not forgive will not be forgiven them. We have a real hard time with that, right? Because we think God's the only one. God gives authority to particularly, right, in this context, he gives authority to his apostles to speak on his behalf. That's why I read this book like it matters a lot because Peter's wrote some material here and I want to follow it. And so he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he told his disciples, don't tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And so there is on this qualifier type piece, there is this, this role that Peter and the rest of the apostles, and, and I believe not in the exact same way, but by proxy, there is a level of importance for those in leadership to help people realize like, hey, this is biblical and this is not biblical. This is true and this is not true. Sadly, we live in a kind of a very anti-authoritarian time, but the Bible itself has this kind of instruction. Matthew chapter 18, verse 3, why is humility so important? Matthew uh, verses, uh, chapter 18, verse 3, uh, Jesus is talking about these children that he loves dearly, and not just because they're cute, okay, because Jesus knows their heart, right? Jesus knows how messed up they are. But there's something interesting about them, and he says this, verse 2, um, because the question is who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It, it's the smartest one, right? Who, like, who is it? And here's what Jesus says, calling him to a child, he put him in the midst and said, truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is describing as an incredible kingdom qualifier is an utter recognition in our minds of how much we need him. Like, do you know how much you need him for everything in your life? 
That is a kingdom qualifier. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. I love this text. I have it on the other side as well. Um, in this particular section, I'm not gonna read through the whole thing. This is the famous chapter where Jesus describes the separating of the sheep and the goats, kind of like Mount Ebal and Mount Garrison. or this was Ebal, right? Yes, Mount Ebal on Sunday was this side and Mount Garrison was this side. And so we have the goats and the sheep, the sheep and the goats. And there is this separation of them and separated over what? Like, what gets me in the kingdom? Now, by the way, again, Jesus doesn't believe in works apart from faith in him. But Jesus also says, like, if you really believe in me, then these are some going to be some natural things. My concern with the church um, is when we try to help people feel as though they're part of the church and part of God's promise, and then we say, but you can live any way that you want, we remove the fruit and so we've got a bunch of what we're gonna call apple trees that never produce apples and the tree's going, I just don't feel like an apple tree. I'd be honest with you, I don't feel like one. Well, you are one. Well, how would I know? I just, I feel confused. And this is the problem. Now here, we are saved, let me tell you again, saved by grace through faith. And that salvation produces fruit in us. It produces something in us. And so that's why Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 25, this is what it looks like. When we see people who are naked, we clothe them. And when we know people who are in prison, we visit them. When we know that they are hungry, and particularly, this is, this is actually a text to care for the church, caring for one another. And, and that's what we do, because we are followers of Jesus Christ. And, and that's how you can know, right? It's not doing those things earned you apart from what Christ did, salvation. It's those people who really understand who Jesus Christ, they act like this. What I love is their response. And again, Jesus is telling more of a story. And in this story, they say, but Jesus, when did we see you? Like we were just doing this natural thing. We were just caring for our brothers and sisters. And he says, yeah, that was me. I know you didn't see it, like you're really not, you see, you can almost like, it almost like gives this little bit of a hint, like you weren't like working for it. You were just doing what came natural. You weren't, you weren't, they weren't going, hey, you owe us, we fed you. They're going, when did we feed you? I didn't even notice that. When did that happen? Well, do you remember that person? Do you remember when you cared for them? That was me. Oh, okay, now I, I love that picture. And so this becomes, again, one of those, and I know the word qualifier can be kind of an interesting statement. John 3, verse 5. John chapter 3, verse 5. Um, Jesus is having a conversation with a very intelligent religious person. And Jesus, uh, he asks, how can someone be born? And Jesus makes this comment to him uh, that God is like the wind. He does whatever he wants. And uh, Nicodemus is confused by this statement. I almost said Zacchaeus, but it's Nicodemus. Nicodemus is confused by this statement. And then Jesus says, unless someone is born of the water and the spirit, he will surely not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think he's clearly alluding to either the baptism of John, which you actually see in John chapter two, a submissive spirit, but he's really describing that there is a work that is done. There is a there is a supernatural act that happens. John 3, verse five. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. I thought this was kind of interesting. 
In Acts 14, what it describes is that through many hardships and trials, we will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, by the way, again, is he saying, and unless you have those hardships or trials, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven? No, but I I think this is, here's what I love about this. This is where we are cautioned yet once again to believe that when things start going bad around us, that somehow God has abandoned us. When we start going through problems and difficulties, when we meet adversity, our first response is what? What am I doing wrong? Why did this happen to me? What is going on here? Answer, I don't know how it's working. But let me tell you this, and what he's talking about here are tribulation. And Jesus makes it very, very clear. This is how we enter into the kingdom of heaven, is through this adversity, is through these, or through these kinds of difficulties. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses four through six, gives a very similar situation. Let's go to that one so I can read it to you. Second Thessalonians chapter one, we don't usually spend a lot of time in this chapter. I've never actually preached through it here. Um, at Sunnybrook, First Thessal or Second Thessalonians, not First Second Second, not First, but Second Thessalonians, chapter one. Yeah, now you know why I don't do it. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfast faith in all of your persecutions and in all of the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom. And that's kind of a picture of fruit. Like we wouldn't think that. So you're telling me all these afflictions, by the way, this actually matches what Peter and John say when they are persecuted. They go back and they rejoice, what? That they were considered worthy to suffer for the name. That's so foreign to our thinking. But it's a biblical idea. So this qualifying agent is this purifying difficulty. James chapter two, verse five, this is one that we, we, but don't worry, he's gonna have things to say about the rich, but it's on the disqualifying side. But here he says in James chapter two, verse five, he describes, and his point here is, is that, listen, I don't know why you guys are, um, I don't know why you guys are discriminating against poor people, because don't you realize, this is his statement in James, is don't you realize that God chose the poor to demonstrate his power in the kingdom? That God chose the lesser thans, God didn't come along and say, you know, if I could just get Oprah Winfrey, then I could really do something here. God seems to have, nothing nothing against Oprah, but we love to celebrate the greats, whether it's intellectual or financial, and God doesn't. God, God doesn't look like that. God looks at the heart, and God does seem to have an amazing desire to lift up those that are humble. And 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 through 12 actually says this, um, that you need to spend time making sure you need to remain steadfast. You need to not fall away. You need to make both your calling and your election sure, and that by doing that, you will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So these become kind of how the Bible, like you might go, well, what about I'm just telling you, this is how the Bible describes what it actually means to be a part of the king. I don't, I'm not saying that's all it says about what it looks like, but I think we don't spend enough time lifting up these. As we wrap up, let's talk about the kingdom disqualifiers. Again, not exhaustive, but these things are how the Bible describes, and I'm just gonna use the biblical language, losing inheritance. 
Losing kingdom privilege. That's what the Bible calls it. Now you might say, well, but that's not. I mean, that's, that's for you to try to think through theologically. We're just looking at the text and this is how it is described. Matthew, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, notice how much kingdom language is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew actually says in, in uh, uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, describing people, interesting, who will not inherit the kingdom Some of the people on the last day are people who are going to say to him, but Lord, Lord, did we not? Did did we not do things? Like, was I not? And Jesus says, he will look at them and say, I don't know you. I never knew you. I find that fascinating. And by the way, this isn't too cast doubt it doesn't mean so therefore none of us can be sure I don't believe that actually because Jesus makes it clear he says that at the very end of that section in Matthew 7 that it's those who do his will those who do the will of God those who follow him not those who say they followed him but those who followed him going back to the whole naturally there should be fruit that comes from our lives which is what Jesus is describing in Matthew chapter 7 Matthew chapter 8, I thought this was kind of interesting. Again, we kind of looked at it on the other side as well, that many from the east and the west are going to be coming into the table, but I read it on the first half as well. But what does he say? But those who are sons of the kingdom, those who think they have privilege and priority because of something other than what God has ordained will be cast into outer darkness. Now, I want you to catch this repeated theme that kingdom qualifying life is a life that is profound in its humility and in its dependence upon God, not its prerogative. Like, we don't have prerogative. You know what you and I have? Gratefulness. You and I are astounded that God would choose us. We are blown away by the grace that he gives us. Not, hey, you know what, I'll be honest with you. Like, I I preached in Oklahoma for 12 years. Seriously, like what do you, God, you owe me. God's like, I owe you nothing. I owe you nothing. You understand? Everything I give you is gift. You don't, you don't earn any of this. That's the difference. And Jesus is warning about, uh, by the way, this one of my favorite, it doesn't really have a kingdom word in it, but I had to go back and trace it again. I love the warning that John the Baptist gives to the religious leaders of his day. Hey, and whatever you do, do not claim Abraham as some kind of privilege, because God will raise up from these stones sons of Abraham. Don't claim it. Don't claim it. As we look on, Matthew chapter 19, verse 24. So the good news is, God does have a word for us who are rich. (laughs) Okay, the poor he selects, and the rich, he says, and by the way, there are other texts. There are parallels, by the way, sometimes in, um, in Mark or in Luke, and I just thought I would just take one of them. So this actually is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this, this repeated phrase, which is that it is only with difficulty that a rich person will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, we know he didn't mean that, right? Like, we know that, that, that ah, get out of here. No, actually. Like it can be, now think about this. So is it the money? First of all, let me say no. It's not the money. 
um, having money doesn't create enough itself by itself completely the problem. The problem is, is that with money, a wicked heart, which what we all have, with money, a wicked heart doesn't think it needs God. It doesn't have a childlike, I need you, right? It has more of a, I got this. I got this. I can fix this. I can control this. And that's the separation. That's the, that's the angst. It's what wicked hearts do. Um, I'll, I'll repeat what I heard years ago. Th- three of the most difficult things to overcome spiritually are wealth, health, and morality. Here's what concerns me. My wife and I, if we're not careful, pray for our children more than anything else. Wealth, health, and that they'll be good boys. And do you see what happens sometimes? Is I, I, I think without having a biblical perspective, a lot of our prayers, even though they're answered, can create some pretty broken, eternally wrong direction headed people. And Jesus says, only with difficulty will the rich person enter heaven. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. Here's what he says to religious people. I thought this is kind of a warning for for those who are leaders and for those who are following, okay? Because it really is, it's, 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 I kind of wish that God only punished bad leaders, but God also punishes foolish followers. Okay, I kind of wish that wasn't the case. Now, I think he punishes, he seems in the Bible, he seems to just punish poor leaders more harshly than, 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 than foolish followers. But here in Matthew 23, Jesus is describing hypocrites, the leaders. And here's what he basically says about them. You neither enter the kingdom yourself because you got all these rules and regulations and you even help people or hinder, you, you help people to not, but you hinder them from getting into the kingdom of heaven. So I, I need you to hear this. There are religious people, because I don't mean by religious Christian. There are religious people who are, and I don't even know how well they're cognitively doing this because the Pharisees weren't doing it intentionally. Okay, they were misguided, but they were leading people in the wrong direction. That's why I ask you, don't believe everything I say. Please don't, just because I say it. Or even Ryan Vincent or Drew Moss. Like, even if they say it, don't just buy it. You need to challenge what they say and see if it lines up with Scripture. See if it lines up with the Holy Spirit before you ever buy into it. Because there are those people who mean well. And so when people say to you, when they try to comfort you in your sin or in your rebellion or in your foolishness or in your fruitlessness and they try to comfort you, The Bible says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, and woe to those who say peace where there is no peace. Woe to you. And so the Bible describes religious leaders with the best of intentions. That's the God of our day. But I meant well. Yeah, so did the Pharisees. They crucified Jesus with the best of intentions. So next, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Again, those people who offered visitation, who offered clothing, who offered food, those were blessed. Come into my presence. 
And then there were those that didn't. Those who were goats. Those who did not extend this. And what I love their accusation. Hey, Jesus, when did, I, I promise, I would have done it if I would have seen you. If I would have seen you naked, I would have taken care of it. If I would have seen you. And Jesus says, ah. Now he teaches. What does he say? I mean, whenever you would have done it for the least of these brothers of mine, you would have done it for me. And his answer to them is, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fires. Luke 9, verse 62, Jesus says about the kingdom of God, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The teaching there, hold on to your hats, divided loyalty. That's what Jesus is talking about. You commit to the plow to work, but you're, all, you're also trying to do this. So you're, it's, there is a kingdom focus and when you're divided, Jesus says, those divided of heart, those divided of mind, are not fit for the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Let me read these verses to you, um, because we live in a day and an age. I'm, I'm, re, I'm going with, uh, through a book with some college students right now, and I love the book. I do. I love the book. It's written by two pastors that I'm deeply grateful for. Um, and yet my concern with them is they know how to care for the social issues and then completely ignore a lot of what I would consider other deeply ethical issues regarding sexual ethics. We are living in a day and an age where almost uh, there is evil racism, evil, okay? Um, any kind of inhuman behavior, evil. Sexual immorality, eh, chill. You're, you're so uptight about that sex thing. Relax. Okay. I know you want me to, but can I just read this before I just chill? Here is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, which are not just people who have slaves and people who are being involved in like meth labs, but there's what it says. Do you not know? Yet the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greed, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, that's a real list. And I know we want to kind of, well, but let me explain what he meant by that. Let me explain. Um, actually, it's, honestly, I would argue it's more clear than you and I want to admit. The power in this is actually in verse 11. Don't ever forget verse 11. Verse 11 is actually um, the only verse that's underlined in, this t in my Bible. And verse 11 says what? And these were what you were. I love how he's not just ripping on them. He's pointing out, and do you realize what you were? And do you realize you're not that anymore? And what, I, what concerns me as the church is that we know how to be mad at those people that have an ethic that's wrong. And then we know how to embrace them and just don't ever ask them to change. And both of those aren't biblical. You know what's biblical? Is to call sin, sin. And to call people to forgiveness. And to experience the transformation that only the Holy Spirit can do. So we don't have a right to be mad and angry at those who are sexually immoral. Because that was us. Many of us. We share in these sins. Right? But we don't celebrate them. 
Because people who celebrate them, people who live in them, people who walk in them will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 actually says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now again, you read that literally, that would be all of us, right? But again, kind of what he's saying in this chapter is that there is a spiritual component to this. I love the reminder that it's not just children. There is, there is a, I, I, I love being reminded that there is there's no artful way that I can just convince you with persuasion, with a really cool speech and a really powerful, you know, kind of a heart-wrenching illustration and then you go, I'm ready to accept Jesus. Actually, if, 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 if just that sermon did it kind of all by itself and it wasn't the Holy Spirit, I don't think you heard me right. There is a spiritual component that inherits the kingdom of heaven. Galatians 5, 21, you actually have a very similar list that you see in 1 Corinthians 6. The sexually immoral will not inherit. And by the way, not people who have struggled with, people who openly embrace. There is a difference there. And then lastly, Ephesians 5, 5, let me read this text as I close with you tonight. Ephesians chapter five, verse five. I love how he kind of describes this. He kind of describes this, this radical change that happens in our lives. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God and let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon Sons of disobedience. And that is why we need to be honest and we need to be truthful about that area of life which stands outside of God's reign and control and under God's judgment. And that is why I believe that it is so important that you and I think through and pray through and humble ourselves and be grateful for what Jesus Christ has done for us so that we can live under his kingdom rule and therefore not face his judgment. Amen? These are the verses. Again, it's not an exhaustive list. Let, let me just always say this. If for some reason you're concerned and you want to talk, I'd love to meet with you and I know others who would. If you're going, but I mean, some of these things, I'm afraid I've been disqualified. Then let's talk about it. I don't see any fruit in my life. Does that matter? I would argue it does. Either you're not seeing fruit that is there, in which case I want you to see it and find assurance, okay? Or I want you to be maybe more concerned as to why there is no fruit. And I want you to find that fruit that the Holy Spirit has for you. Um, and the other thing that I would say is that maybe, um, maybe, you're not, maybe you're not concerned and you should be, <laughs> Right? In which case, it's harder for you to find me because you don't even know you need me. So I'll just pray for you, right? Isn't that humbling? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love for us. And I love the fact that you're in control of this, that this is your kingdom and not mine. And that God, even though I don't nail this perfectly, this lesson tonight, um, none of our salvation is completely dependent upon whether or not I nail this. You are. Thank you for the clarity of the scriptures. Father, lead us. And may we be kingdom people and may we experience in very many real ways this life in the kingdom. And God, I look forward for when it is perfected. 
Come, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Hey, I'll see you guys Sunday, but um, on Monday, five of us actually leave for Ghana, and we're going to be in Africa for a couple of weeks working with a group over there uh, that is doing some great work in the northern part of Ghana, which is mostly Muslim. Um, I think the total is 27 churches and church leaders that we're going to be visiting. And uh, we've never been there as a church before. I'm excited about the team. Jeremy Redman, myself, Ryan Bennett, Ryan Smith, and Paul Weiss are going to be going on this trip. So again, we'll be here Sunday, and so we'll see you then. But we would covet your prayers, not for safety, but for kingdom advancement. Love you guys.